0: Welcome to the Talks on Law, Illinois MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. Now for the interview.
1: Why don't we talk for a second about national laws governing outer space? And since I'm uh, here in the United States, what does the US have to say? What are the US laws? on outer space?
0: Well, the baseline for national space laws is the obligation under the Outer Space Treaty to authorize and supervise, those are the literal words of Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, of any non-governmental entities, which is of course mainly private enterprise. So before the United States could legally allow private citizens or companies to to do anything in outer space, they need to set up a licensing system, a system for authorization and monitoring their activities. And the U.S. has diligently done that. They have a Commercial Space Launch Act, which requires every U.S. launch service provider to get a license before he can do that. And of course, before he gets the license, he has to come up with a number of pieces of evidence that he's safe, that he knows what he's doing, that he's got enough insurance, etc. etc. If you want to operate a satellite as a US company, you need a license from the Federal Communications Commission. If you want to operate a remote sensing satellite, you need a license from the Department of Commerce. When new private activities come on board, such as space mining, for example, you now have a discussion going on in the US context which would be the appropriate agency to regulate that, to license those activities. But that's basically where space, national space law comes in. And while you're at it, while you're as a country taking care of your international obligations to authorize and supervise, you can also use the laws to promote as far as you want private sector participation. And obviously the United States as, as a free market country is in principle very much in favor of private enterprise and entrepreneurial activity. And obviously you can use the national law to promote that in many ways.
1: Who's actually giving the approval or the licenses to companies like Blue Origin, SpaceX, Boeing, and the like who are trying to do transport into outer space?
0: The transport licenses are the remit of the Federal Aviation Authority, which has an office for commercial space transportation, and of course that's all within the Department of Transportation, and they give the licenses for any launch and also re-entry in applicable cases of spacecraft.
1: As you mentioned, the United States is a little more free market. We have encouraged or allowed private industry to do these launches, if a country like russia or china for example wanted to keep it all within the government for example they could
0: they could and actually the soviet union has when they were still communist uh, back in the days they have done so they they in their political perspective private ownership of economic production factors was a no-go area because of their political philosophy so there was no private enterprise of note, and certainly not in the space arena, which also meant that there was no need for a national space law in the Soviet Union or Russia as long as it was communist. And that applies to China up to this day, while in Russia, after the Soviet Union fell apart and Russia then turned, at least to some extent, into a free market economy, you then saw that in 1993, the Russians also created their national space legislation to allow private sector space activities under their authorization.
1: Could you envision a future where there was, let's say, a Panama of space flags where a specific country might be the most commercially friendly in order to get more of the business, in a sense?
0: Of course, you're speaking about the risk of flags of convenience, a cheap licensing state, uh, going for the lowest licensing, which is a problem in the maritime sector. You can never exclude it in space, but I think there are two good reasons why I think in space this is not likely, certainly not in the near future, to happen. One is the fact that if you license a launch, if you allow an operator to launch from your territory, you are allowing him to conduct the most dangerous part of his activity on your territory or just above it. If you again, if you make the comparison to the law of the sea of Panama, license a ship and doesn't impose any safety regulations because it is not really interested and it just wants the small fee for its register, and ship owners flock to Panama because they can get a very cheap license there. If something bad happens to the tanker, the chances are 95% that the victims are somewhere else that happens on the oceans or in front of the American shores, of African shores, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Contrast that with space. If something bad happens for a launch because you allowed a floppy operator, you know, without any safety controls to launch, 95% of the chance the debris is raining on your head. So that makes a state presumably much more wary to hand out licenses just for the sake of attracting activities.
1: So perhaps the imminence of the danger or the extremity of it could be a path out of this tragedy of the commons economic challenge.
0: Yeah, in particular because the extreme danger backfires on the state who is the launching state, right? The state where the launch takes place. That's the practical reason. And then in addition, there's a legal reason that's also different from the law of the sea that goes back to the Outer Space Treaty and another convention elaborating that, which says that the state is liable also for damage caused by private actors. So if the United States allows SpaceX or Boeing to launch under floppy circumstances and the thing lands in Mexico and crashes and causes a billion dollars of damage there, the Mexican government is entitled to request the $1 billion damage, not from Boeing or, or SpaceX, from the U.S. government. That's the international regime. So again, the U.S. government, knowing that, better make sure that they only allow Boeing or SpaceX or whoever you want to care to put in there to fly if they are very certain that A, they know what they're doing so that the chance that they will crash in Mexico is minimal and B, even if they crash in Mexico, that they have the appropriate insurance to cover at least a major part of that liability. So again, the way space law is structured presents a strong urge on states on not giving away cheap licenses, because you are going to have to pay the bill at the end of the day.
1: Fascinating. Has that tragedy happened yet? Have we seen a state have to go pay another state because of a, a down satellite or, or some other orbital disaster?
0: So far, no. There have been a few Satellite on satellite hits in outer space, but they were, with one exception, they were all satellites or other debris of the same state, which then, of course, becomes a matter of that state to regulate. International law doesn't dictate how France should solve an internal conflict if a French satellite hits another French satellite, right? or take the US case, same thing. The one exception is when a Russian satellite, which had run out of control for 10 years, crashed into an Iridium satellite, Iridium being a US operator, which was thereby kicked out of operation. But for a number of reasons, which probably goes a little bit too deep right now, both sides choose not to make a legal issue out of this. So we have never seen a formal claim in that sense being laid on the table.
1: When it comes to the mining, the U.S. view is that nations and companies under them can or perhaps will be able to extract minerals. Is there an alternative view?
0: Yes, there is. If you put it very simply, Article 2 says only that the area cannot be appropriated. is is a race communis, if you will, a global commons. And then you can interpret that in two ways. You can interpret that the U.S. way, which says, well, a global commons means that it's open for everyone to benefit from it, meaning that we can exploit it ourselves or allow our private sector to exploit it. And the alternative meaning is that you say, well, because it belongs to everyone else, all the minerals in there, also belong to everyone together, to all the states together. So you can't have one single state determining, well, I like this operator, I give him a license and he make a lot of money. That's the kind of interpretation that the Russians try to put up there. I think that is, legally speaking, the weaker interpretation um, because there is very little sound legal argument other than the overarching interpretation question. But that, having said that, as long as the Russians and maybe a few other states are still of that opinion, it still is a political discussion because, you know, a law professor can say that somebody's totally wrong, that a state is totally wrong, that may not keep that state from upholding its
1: wrongful position, right? So we talked about how states are responsible for their national activities. Why don't we talk a little bit about the liability of the commercial actors in the space? First, let's do a quick overview of this. New, I think, super cool industry called space tourism.
0: Well, space tourism is so far subdivided in two. We have seen already in 2001 the first space tourists spending a week on board of the International Space Station. That is orbital tourism. Dennis Tito, who paid something like $20 million for the privilege. A couple of people have followed him since then. And that is what we call suborbital space tourism. Those are basically orbital, suborbital flights. I call them sophisticated bungee jumping because you do it for the kick or five minutes of weightlessness, the beautiful view of the Earth from outside, etc. But the flight doesn't last for longer than maybe a couple of hours. And you don't go higher than just into the lower boundaries of outer space, let's say 105 or 110 kilometers.
1: And in this space, some of the, the players are, what, Virgin Galactic? Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are the first two to being successful there. What are some of the liabilities and challenges for those operators? Legal challenges.
0: The interesting thing about suborbital manned spaceflight is that it raises for the first time a second type of liability, namely the liability of the operator versus the passenger. The liability towards third parties on the ground was already a long standing issue, has already been long solved, and there are very well thought out and detailed processes to determine that. What is new here is if something bad happens and you're on one of these flights, do you get compensated for your damage or maybe do your hairs get compensated for your death? If you or I fly on an airplane and something bad happens to us, the airlines are forced to pay huge sums of money to compensate us for our loss or if we die for, for the loss of our descendants, our heirs.
1: Meanwhile, if I go skydiving, I have to watch a long video and sign away every right I've ever had to negligence, gross negligence, uh, and beyond. Right. And for the time being, that
0: regime is applied by the US Congress to manned space flight as well. US Congress has given the operators the right to fly passengers Without accepting any liability for the passengers, not about third party liability, but for the passengers, as long as these passengers have each signed a informed consent document whereby they recognize that they are flying on something which is not certified for safety by the U.S. authorities. In other words, it's an unsafe thing. And if you do that, you take your own risk and don't come whining if something goes wrong. The only thing that Congress added to that is a timeline, that sort of exemption in principle only applies to 2025, so at that time Congress reserves the right to reassess whether the industry may be so mature that they can afford to take away this special protection for the operators, or whether it's still necessary for further development to extend that grace period.
1: So that's for the suborbital. Let's talk about the long-term, I suppose we could call it, long-term tourism in space. Are there different legal liabilities there? That depends actually on who
0: you are flying with. That's why suborbital is so new. Suborbital, for the first time, use privately funded, privately operated vehicles. I spoke of Dennis Tito before, he still flew on a Russian Soyuz and the others did too. So they were just private passengers on a, on a public transport system, which meant that the liability was for the Russians to take care of and how they handled that vis-a-vis Dennis Tito or the other tourists was their own issue. When it comes to a private operator, if SpaceX starts flying tourists to outer space itself, then the same rule may still apply. It so far has not been applied to orbital flights because there are no tourists at this moment for orbital flights. The reason why SpaceX and Blue Origin and Boeing are developing them is that NASA needs a replacement for the space shuttle, which used to be a public vehicle, but of course has been retired. And now since the United States does not want to be dependent upon the Russians, to fly them and their astronauts to the space station. That's why NASA has given a big boost to these private operators. But they are still flying NASA astronauts for the time being, which means that it's a different ball game and NASA has already arranged for a separate status of their government astronauts by way of law as well.
1: So currently the liability issue for orbital tourism hasn't been delineated from what we've discussed so far because there's really no near-term plans for it.
0: If SpaceX uses the technology help, developed with the help of NASA for getting astronauts to the space station for saying, well, now that we have the technology, we can also fly a couple of millionaires for a couple of orbits around the Earth. I presume for those types of flights, they will apply the same liability that we just discussed, if the timeline is not extended or whatever. But if it concerns flights to the space station where you have professional astronauts doing it, I'm assuming that there will be a slightly different regime, but that hasn't been developed yet.
1: Let's talk about rescue. If you're on one of these orbital tourism flights and your ship needs to be saved and let's say another country has to come and get you at great expense. Who's on the hook for that? That's a great question, Um, and there are some
0: rules in international space law which deal with that, but these rules were developed back in the 60s and 70s when the only people in outer space were government astronauts and cosmonauts, cosmonauts just being the Russian version, the Russian term for astronauts, right? So they were all public employees, they were doing that, they were risking their lives for the sake of humankind, for the sake of science, and that's why these treaties give them a kind of a special status, a special deference which includes the obligations for every state to do whatever it can within its power to rescue them if something went wrong. Now fast forward to the first space tourists and the discussion arose, should we really accord those people who after all do it for the fun and just because they have an incredible amount of money to afford it, should we accord them the same kind of deference? as an astronaut who is risking his life for mankind and not for his own pure private pleasure. And the general consensus, I dare say, is probably not, right? Which means that states, they always have a general humanitarian obligation to do what is reasonable to rescue a human in distress. That applies on the ground or in the mountains or on the seas, et etc. Et but you don't have to go out of your way. Now, what the difference is between reasonable and out of your way, There is obviously a difference between it. Where the borderline is, nobody knows for sure. So far, it's all been theoretical anyway. But I would assume that when you talk about a space tourist in distress, the assumption would be, well, he took that risk knowingly and willingly. Think about the informed consent. So why should a state put up many millions for a rescue operation? On the other hand, if you have a mountaineer going up Mount Everest, he is also taking a huge risk. And there is still a sort of public obligation on the part of the Nepali government to try and rescue him the best they can. But they don't have to risk their own lives to do that. So maybe that's where the borderline is. But this is still something to be sought out.
1: It's certainly much more complicated when we're talking about multi-billion dollar spaceships with extreme costs, and I imagine higher risks involved as well.
0: Absolutely. And you should also think about the reality. A rescue in Everest, you can stage within a few hours or maybe a day. A rescue in outer space, you don't have something ready to launch on the launch pad. It may take at least a few months, unless you are lucky that there is something on the launch pad or something in the neighborhood which can easily maneuver. So that's something else to factor in this whole discussion, that it's not likely that you can just, okay, there we go, right?
1: You've done a great job explaining some of the rights of nations on celestial bodies, but at the end of the day, part of the issue is going to be how they enforce those rights. Let's talk a little bit about military's ability to step in and set up a base, for example, on one of these celestial bodies.
0: Yes, well, I won't touch upon the point of enforcement for the time being, because that's a whole different ballgame, but the Outer Space Treaty is pretty clear that there are to be no military bases, stations, maneuvers, or anything like that, let alone weapons on the moon or any other celestial body. So that's a very strict regime to which, again, I should say, the United States, Russia, China, and all the other major space nations have agreed. So if they do something like that, nevertheless, they are in violation of that agreement. So the regime limiting the military use of the moon and other celestial body is really very limited. You are allowed to use military personnel as long as it's for exploration purposes. And of course you couldn't expect otherwise because all the first generation US astronauts and Russian cosmonauts were after all military personnel or almost all of them were. When it comes to outer space as such, however, the regime is much less strict. It only prohibits the stationing or orbiting of weapons of mass destruction, read, Nuclear weapons. So, the use of space for military reconnaissance, for military communications, for navigation of terrestrial cruise missiles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as such, is not prohibited by the Outer Space Treaty.
1: Interesting. So, if the United States wanted to set up a new uh, space station, a domestic space station, if you will, a new U.S. space station that was for military purposes, and they wanted to stock it with explosive rockets, they'd be welcome to do so. They couldn't build a similar station on the moon. Exactly. All right, let's take a quick break for the MCLE code. The code for this interview, for those who are earning MCLE credit is 110515. Again, that's 110515. Now back to the interview. When it comes to the moon or to celestial bodies, what do we do with that? If there's no ability to set up a military station and there are certain rights that will eventually need to be enforced, will nation states be able to set up local police forces, for example?
0: I consider that very unlikely. The setup of the Outer Space Treaty presumes that every state is sovereign, so there are only limited Limitations to that sovereignty. I mentioned one earlier: the obligation to allow representatives of other states in your space station is was precisely included in the Outer Space Treaty. For that reason, so that if the Russians would have a base on the Moon, United States representatives, again subject to reasonable precautions, would be entitled to visit that base just to make sure that the Russians would not harbour any weapons or other military plans there. In terms of enforcement. There is nothing in the Outer Space Treaty, precisely because it's a treaty between sovereign nations and neither the United States nor, presumably, every other any other nation would give the United Nations or any other international body the right to police that. So it's all a matter of bilateral controls.
1: What about if the United States wanted to, you know, you could imagine a world where if there's a number of commercial actors on the moon, and there might be some disputes among them, perhaps we would want the United States to have maybe a national enforcement unit stationed there as well.
0: As long as it's not military, then that would be okay. But then we should also realize that the power, the competence of such an agency to deal with disputes would only extend in as far as it only concerns U.S. citizens or U.S. stations. So if there are two U.S. private companies having, having a fight or are in a dispute over a certain place on the moon, then it's up to the U.S. to solve this dispute between those two private operators. But if one of them is Chinese... You know, uh, the Chinese will never accept that a U.S. entity would decide on a dispute between a Chinese operator and a U.S. operator, and vice versa, the U.S. will never accept the Chinese to decide on that, right? And that's where there is no international overarching regime to make sure that that happens. So that all has to be done by bilateral negotiations between the countries. And the only thing that the treaties say about this is this limited provision Uh, requiring everyone who has a station on the moon or another celestial body to allow access to a duly authorized representative of another member state to allow that member state to make sure that that other state or that other operator is not doing anything in violation of the treaties, read maybe harbor weapons or do anything else military which is not allowed.
1: Again, are, are you allowed to bring any explicit weapons onto the moon? What about even a pistol?
0: Now, of course, we should not forget that the pistol probably doesn't work on the moon, not the way pistols are built right now. It is not literally spoken, I should maybe qualify that, the word weapon as such is not in this provision. It talks about military activities, military stations, military bases. So weapons which are exclusive to the military are by definition prohibited. So if you talk about tanks or big guns or fighter jets, which won't work on the moon either, but just, you know, as a way of imagining, that is prohibited. A simple pistol, is that a weapon in a military sense? I doubt it. But again, I'm not sure that it makes sense to bring a pistol in the first place.
1: Because it may or may not work. Exactly. And what about as an American, if I'm on a base on the moon, do I have my Second Amendment right to bear arms?
0: The right to bring any arms to the moon is limited by what the Outer Space Treaty says. So if the arm is something that is used for military purposes, like a tank or a gun or a machine gun or things like that, the answer is no. And not even the US national laws can change that. Whether when you talk about a pistol or something like that, which is not subject to this limitation of military arms, military munitions, then it becomes a different matter. Now, the NRA or any U.S. law can only extend to U.S. settlements, not outside and can only extend to U.S. citizens. So whatever Chinese is entitled or not entitled to carry around is not for the NRA or the U.S. authorities to decide.
1: I appreciate you humoring my joke with a reasoned out response. I'm a lawyer, right? No military establishments on the moon. I have to bring it up, what would that mean for a future Space Force base on the Moon?
0: That's a great question and I'm going to give you a lawyer's answer, it depends, right? If if you look at the Space Force, the way it's presented so far, it can mean a range of things. What is currently happening is essentially a fundamental bureaucratic reorganization So far, the U.S. Air Force has taken care of all the U.S. military operations and interests in outer space, and that's now simply set aside. So we now have a separate heading, which means that it's a shifting of personnel, of money, of buildings, of authorities, etc., etc., but there's not much happening there. Now, in addition, what could happen, and what I assume is part of the assumption by many dealing with the Space Force, is that it also means that the budgets will go up. Because the argument would be, well, Russia and China are beefing up their space operations, and we need to be on a par not to be left behind. There it becomes a matter of a political assessment. If you, and I don't know the answer to that, I, I'm not privy to all the military secrets, but if you have evidence that the Russians and the Chinese are already gearing up their military space forces and they do already have their own space forces for a number of years, then it's only fair to accept that the United States can do the same. They're just sort of going with the flow, making sure that they don't fall behind. If you are on the contrary of the opinion that the Russians and the Chinese do not do anything of the sort and that the extra financing in the U.S. context would be to gain the upper hand more than it may have now, then there may be political concerns political, not legal, but there may be political concerns that thereby you are pushing the Russians and the Chinese on their turn to beef up so that the escalation is caused by the U.S. action as opposed to the Russians or the Chinese. But that's again a matter of political interpretation and nobody in international law can limit the access, uh, the amount of money that a particular state pours into outer space. There may be political concerns about raising international tensions That may go against the general spirit of the space treaty, but not the letter. Where it really becomes legally tricky is if the Space Force would include, and that goes back to your original question, if the Space Force would include actual bases on the moon, right? Space troopers running around with their machine laser guns and firing to any foreigner in sight. Now, that's a clear no-go area in the law, under international law, as the U.S. agreed upon it. Also, if it means that the Space Force would result in being nukes, nuclear weapons being orbited around the Earth. That's also, legally speaking, a no-go area. So it all depends on what is an effect at the end of the day meant with Space Force before I can give a solid legal assessment.
1: I'm curious, uh, before we let you go, when you watch one of these sci-fi shows like The Expanse, or even going back in time, Star Trek, are you, all, are you thinking about them as a space lawyer thinking, oh, hmm, I wonder how this legal regime actually compares to what we have in place?
0: No, not really. I'm enjoying it for what it is. Although having said that, I have learned enough, I've been in touch with enough scientists and astronauts to know a little bit about that as well. And I recall that 10 years ago or something like that, I was sitting with my boys and watching one of those movies about fighting incoming asteroids, right? And my boy said after 15 minutes, dad, can you please leave the room because you're spoiling all the fun? Because I was saying, oh, this is not the way it happened. This is not, this is totally wrong and it, it doesn't look like that at all and stuff like that. But no, the legal issues usually do not come uh, prominently in those movies. Professor van
1: der Dung, thank you for your time today. My pleasure.
0: For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com.
1: If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash I-L-M-C-L-E
0: podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Illinois MCLE podcast.